At the USCCB meeting, Bishop Caggiano introduced a proposal for a new Institute on the Catechism. So today on Let Me Be Frank, His Excellency will tell us the reason for the Institute and details on how he sees it working. And we couldn't let June pass by without wishing a happy Father's Day to all the fathers, biological fathers, spiritual fathers, to our fathers who are living and those who have passed. So in the second segment, Bishop Caggiano will talk about fatherhood, beginning with God the Father and coming all the way down to each of us. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM, or if you're listening on the mobile app on your phone, um, keep listening to the mobile app on your phone. The app is available at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at VeritasCatholic.com. Veritas Catholic Network is bringing the truth to Connecticut and New York, so when you're tired of listening to noise, put on Veritas and be fed. All right, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning, my friend. Good morning. Hi, hi Excellency. So, uh, busy week for you. Um, yeah, um, but was. <laughs> you made some, uh, you made some uh, headlines as the chairman of the Bishop's Subcommittee on the Catechism. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you're sponsoring, you put forth a, a proposal for a new initiative, and I'd um, love to yeah. hear about that, Excellency. Uh, and I'm very excited about it um, in many ways because I think a lot of the intention is drawn around the Eucharistic coherence question. And um, Bishop Cousins gave an excellent presentation on the Eucharistic Revival Initiative, which we should talk about, a three-year effort to draw Catholics' attention back to the Eucharist as the foundational mystery of our faith, where you and I know we enter into grace in the, into the death and resurrection of Christ. Okay. There is no more intimate moment in grace than when we receive the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Okay. All the great saints taught us that. And St. Paul, starting with St. Paul. Right. Now, part of the initiative, right, Part of the impetus to the initiative is this very disturbing statistic that however you phrase the question, a majority of Catholics no longer believe what the Eucharist to be in faith, that is the real presence of Christ, not a symbol, not a sign, the real, enduring, substantial presence of Christ in the world. Okay. And as I said before we started to tape, we need to parse that a bit more in a more nuanced fashion because belief is more than intellectual understanding. Um, And to the extent that many people no longer have a philosophical training, and because we've had the poor state of catechesis in our country for a very long time, um, people have never been exposed to the richness of what we believe, and may actually believe more than they are able to express in words, if that makes sense. There may be an intuition of faith that when they try to explain it, they explain it in a way that's different from what the church teaches. But with the right language and the right training, they would actually discover that in the root, they do believe what the church believes. So it's it's a very complicated question. And to your point about the initiative, for the last few years, the Subcommittee on the Catechism has been working on this proposal that I launched at the end of our meeting. Um, 
and I personally am excited about it because it will endure way past my chairmanship. This is a generational initiative that will, when it takes off and grows, will be one of the root ways we can reverse the lack of understanding in the Eucharist among Catholics and their assent and belief in the mystery of the Eucharist. Because my contention has always been, it is catechesis in the broadest sense of the word. That is the entree to which people can come to know, understand, and assent to the faith. So if you want to revitalize Eucharistic devotion, you have to revitalize catechesis. If you want to challenge people to live moral lives, and understand what the church teaches, you have to revise you have to revive catechesis. Right? If you want people to be able to engage the world in dialogue and not be lost or chewed up by the world, you gotta revitalize catechesis. Yes. So I'm excited about that very much. Yeah. Right? And it's long in the coming. It's long in the coming. Okay. So um, if you ask me the question which we talked about off, uh, off recording. Like, so what is this thing? What is this institute? Okay. I want you to go back to my childhood, that scary time in prehistoric times when I was a kid, when I was a child, okay? All right. Before there was running water and electricity, as, as some people claim, but not that far back, okay? Um, who taught me the faith? Right? You're younger than I, right? By maybe about 20 years. So you could ask the same question of yourselves and those who are older on the podcast and ask them, who, who taught me the faith? Okay, my initial response would be my parents, mm -hmm. my family, mm -hmm. my neighborhood, my teachers. In that order, in that order, okay? Because catechesis is a moment in a larger process. We've talked about this before. That larger process builds on an initial encounter with Jesus Christ, a recognition, uh, a meeting with the person of Christ that does not have to happen intellectually, but can happen more personally, perhaps somewhat affectively, emotionally, somewhere in the intuition of one's own person, you encounter, you meet, you come face to face with the offer of meaning, the offer that what life is before you is only the tip of the iceberg. There is more than meets the eye. It is the encounter with the promise that when you botch up life, when you sin, you are not left to your own devices but there is a way forward, okay? That there is a way to seek forgiveness, that your life has meaning beyond what you could ever describe in words, beyond your wildest imagination, it has an eternal value. Somewhere, deep down inside, you intuit that you are lovable and loved, and that happens in the encounter with Jesus Christ. In and through, first and foremost, the people who love you most intimately, parents, as children, spouses in marriage, friends among young adults. 
And once that encounter occurs, then you hear the euvangelium, you hear the charisma, you hear what? The offer of Jesus Christ. To do what? To lead you to glory. Glimpse it in this life and one day have it in the fullness of eternal life. To become a citizen of a kingdom, of a kingdom. And just as we've said many times before, right? In the modern world, what has changed is that that encounter does not occur often. And when it doesn't occur, everything else can occur in the same way. So for the last 50 years, we were using a model of catechesis that was basically intellectual, that was built as a moment in a larger reality that was no longer happening in greater and greater measure until it became disconnected. So now we have to retrieve the larger process. That's really what the Institute is all about. Mm. It is to foster how the encounter can happen and the response the person gives to it. Then to give the person the language of faith so that you can begin to make sense in the rough and tumble of life what this offer really means and then be able to respond by committing your life to Christ as his disciple in the world. Those are the four steps that the Institute is committed to help realize. Okay, now you may say, well, that's a daunting challenge. Yes, I like daunting challenges. Yes, I do. Because you're gonna strike, strike at the heart of what the problem is. If, if you have not encountered Jesus truly, both as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, as that matures. When you go to Mass, what do you propose you're experiencing at Mass? Theater? Entertainment? Boredom. What are you going to Mass for, right? Yeah. But if you have encountered Mass, then you're entering into the intimate moment, right, when the Lord is there. So the person you've encountered, you fall more deeply in love. Because he comes to you, he comes to you, in you. So, <clears throat> catechesis, which is giving the language, explaining what this is, if you haven't met the Lord Jesus, that's like learning geography. But once it's happened, then there's a passion, there's a fire. All right, so, I said in my presentation, the Subcommittee on the Catechism is pivoting its mandate. What was its mandate? About 27 years ago, the Subcommittee was created because there was the, the judgment on the part of the bishops that the catechetical resources, that is, the books that were being published, were not faithfully presenting the Catholic faith. You know, we joke, all right, in clerical circles about the uh, God loves you, draw a rainbow, and we're done with religion class all right, in the 60s and 70s, right? I didn't have that growing up because I had the Sisters of St. Dominic who actually taught us the faith. But uh, that could be a caricature. But the idea was, was it teaching what the faith taught, right? So the bishops chose to create this subcommittee and go into dialogue with publishers to say, if you're going to get recognized by the bishops of the country that your book is worth buying, that is, it is worth... Um, being adopted by a parish or a school or a diocese because it is, it is truly faithful to the catechism, you have to work with the subcommittee to ensure that happens. Which they did. Mm -hmm. 
And all these years later, the publishers have really tried. They've made tremendous strides. They have been good partners, good faith partners in creating texts. But two things happened, two crossroads along the way, which both the bishops and publishers have been struggling with. The first is that the publishers were creating texts that were in conformity with the catechism. And teachers and pastors and catechists were telling them, what, but, the, but the young people are not responding to them. Okay. They're not being engaged by them. It, it, it's, they're not working the way you would presume they would work. Because in many ways, the encounter had not happened. Mm-hmm. They had not yet fallen in love, even as a child with Jesus. And therefore, that desire was not there, the passion was not there, the curiosity was not there. Which is not the publisher's fault. Okay, But it was a dilemma. So the publishers themselves began to ask, well, how do we make texts that will engage students, capture that curiosity, raise that passion and their desire in that heart? Okay. How do we have these books not just catechize, but evangelize? First problem. Second problem, or so much challenge, is if I gave you the keys to a Ferrari, you could go enjoy it. Don't hold your breath, but this is just an illustration, right? <laughs> so I gave you keys to a Ferrari, you go enjoy it, you love it, all the rest, fine. If you're six years old, I give you keys to a Ferrari, please God, you're not going into the car because I would be irresponsible to give you the keys. So, if we create texts that are in conformity with the catechism and we don't have parents or catechists or Catholic school teachers who can take that material and help a child to understand it and more so live the faith so that there's integrity of life, then the book can only do so much my point would be the book can do almost nothing. So we spent as bishops all these years focusing in on the students and the student texts when we've come to the realization that the text, the giving of the language, needs to presume encounter, which we now need to struggle with. And in the hands of those who are going to be effective, we have to work with the leadership in catechesis to bring them to conversion and greater faith and teaching of methodology so that they can effectively use those books to bring our students to faith. So the whole landscape has changed in 25 years, right? And part of the difficulty we are experiencing that no one's willing to admit, but I will say so, is because of the scandals in the church that have involved priests at times, who are the principal celebrants. They are the persona Christi at the altar offering the sacrifice of the mass on behalf of God's people. That has also become an obstacle for some people to Eucharistic faith because they's not yet reconciled. They can't get beyond the fact that you can have relatively few but sinful, sometimes wildly sinful members of the church, including in the hierarchy, but the church still be the 
the, the bride of Christ. Yes. And Christ still comes in our midst. They can't get beyond that. That may not be many, but still part of the layer of what we're dealing with. So in my mind, this initiative is going to create the possibility of addressing the larger landscape. And for the first time in two generations say, let's stop and shift gears so that this hole doesn't get any deeper. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. One of the questions I was gonna ask you, which you answered was, because when you said, in the beginning, you said, who were your primary catechists? You started with your parents, the rest of your family, and your neighborhood. And so in order to catechize the children of this generation and future generations, we need to make sure that the parents and the families and the neighborhoods are all catechized. But that also makes the job 10 times bigger. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you said uh, in front of the conference that this institute is not a one-time thing. Mm-mm. It's not a building. But what's kind of, is there a structure or is there a plan to form yes. a community? To, okay. Yes. All right. So the, the basic intuition is, is very Ignatian. And that is train the trainers and then the, 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 the trainers will then be able in their own individual communities affect the change that has to be made. So the institute is not open to 82 million Catholics in the United States, but it will be open to the protagonists, the leaders, and they fall into two categories. The publishers, which we'll talk about in a second, as well as the bishops, in service of the bishops and all those who shared the bishop's ministry of being the chief catechist. So curial officials, down to, I would think, eventually, the directors of religious education of the 46,000 parishes we have in the country. Okay. They are the prime movers of this. So the institute is not a place. It's not a, a one-off event. It is going to be a sustained, comprehensive, cyclical, that is, every year, both a a meeting that would be over a number of days, that would be formational, as well as ongoing experiences, both in person and online, so that those groups with their particular needs can be met effectively, so that they themselves can be formed, so that they can go forward to form others. So if you imagine, you know, we have, um, we have now online universities. Well, there will be a portion of this that will be kind of an online university for different groups. But then there will be a personal annual experience where we go deeper into the problems that we're facing. And I'll give you a perfect example of what I mean. Besides everything else I talked about, how do we use technology in formation not education, formation. Does it have a role? Absolutely. Does it have an essential role? Perhaps. What is that role? We still yet need to define. Because we're not doing religious education. That language has to be struck. We're doing religious formation of which education is a part. 
But I'm not just educating the mind, I also want to instill a way of life in people so that they live their faith and their character reflects their faith. I don't want them just to be able to quote the catechism intellectually. When you meet them or you meet me, you should say, yes, this is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And by the way, they can teach you the Catholic faith because they know it and they believe it. Right? So, so imagine a cyclical ongoing formation in person, online, and in fora that will take these leaders in a persistent way over many years into deeper, deeper, and deeper formation, breaking open questions that will arise that we have to struggle with to try to understand as the world continually changes around us. Technology is one of them. Diversity and cultural diversity is another. Because not everyone, not everyone encounters Christ and is catechized in exactly the same way because culture does make a difference. Yes. And rather than try to fit everybody into a cookie cutter, no, 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 learn from each other because other cultures can enrich mine to be able to help me more deeply to encounter and respond in catechesis and in discipleship what the Lord is asking of me. So let me give you an example about the publishers. Up to this point, publishers submit texts. When I became chair of the, of the of subcommittee, I don't know, five years ago, whenever it was, they would submit texts and we would pass judgment. They were almost finished. And what we were doing is we were correcting them almost like, like a teacher would correct a book. Yep. And many times helping to rewrite texts. Now, that is a daunting challenge. You may say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the conformity review list has over a thousand books on it. The staff in the office is probably three persons and part-time, so three and a half people. When a, a large publisher submits in a series, for religious ed, that could be 8,000 pages, one series, one wow. series. Yeah. That's one of those thousand, 8,000 pages. So the frustration level began to grow. But quite frankly, the intuition that was the seed to this whole institute is to say, well, you know what? Rather than be a reactive, that is a police function, a corrective function, like teach it student, with all the goodwill that now exists, why don't we go into a collaborative relationship? That is, why don't we have a proactive approach? Meaning that the publisher works with a theological consultant, a catechetical consultant, someone that we know, we have formed, we trust, to work with the writers and editors so that as the book is being written and questions come up, those questions are addressed correctly so that when the book is finished, it's literally finished. It comes to the subcommittee, but there should be few, if any, corrections, right? Yeah. Which is a benefit to the publishers, and quite frankly, more importantly, as these questions come up, the writers, for example, themselves can deepen their philosophical and theological understanding of the Catholic faith. Yeah their own encounter with the Lord then can grow. They will become themselves catechists in the true sense of the word. Now suddenly we are not like in this relationship that is like almost a police function. We are collaborators working in the, walking in the same direction towards the same goal. 
to deepen their and mine and everyone who's going to use these texts and all our students who will use them, their relationship with the Lord Jesus. Yeah. That could change the next chapter of the book or the next level of the series along the way. Correct. Right. Or, and quite frankly, as a pastor of the church, from my perspective, it deepens their relationship with the Lord. Salus animarum suprema lex. The highest law is the salvation of souls. Right? So I think that is a huge step forward in that world. And then for those who are um, leaders in the actual ministerial field, so the bishops, the chief catechist, his curial staff involved in catechesis, the parish staff, leadership in catechesis. Okay. Who is actually going to form the catechists in a parish, if not the pastor and the, the director of faith formation? So if we are working with those leaders, they will then in turn bring those catechists to that encounter and that intellectual understanding of the faith so they could pass it on by witness and word to the students entrusted to the care. And who's going to help our parents in the crazy mixed up world they live in, having grown up in a time where perhaps they were not catechized well, how do we find them back home? See, and the immediate response is, well, you know, they should know better. Well, there are a lot of people who should know better, including ourselves. Yep. But you, how could you condemn someone for not having something that was never given to them? Yeah. So to then, your point about parents, right? Yes. So then in the minute that we have left in this segment, do you see, um, you know, here in the Bridgeport Diocese, we have the benefit of seeing this ambassador program take shape. Do you mm. see something like that being extended throughout the country? That's a very good question. It's a very good question. And, and I think that the onus would be on us to, to show the fruits of the program. But yeah, absolutely. The Eucharistic Revival, Bishop Cousins said... The goal is to create 100,000 Eucharistic missionaries in 2024. Please, God, we may have thousands in our diocese before, before we get to 2024. Yes. Because of the ambassadors. Yes. And it's all about what the true understanding of evangelizing catechesis is. Hence, the Institute. I'm very excited about it. it sounds amazing and so needed, so important. So let's take a break, Excellency. You're listening to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we will be right back on the other side of the break. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. All right, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back. Uh, we were talking about um, the Institute on Catechesis that uh, Bishop Frank Caggiano has been has proposed to the Conference of Bishops. And um, Excellency, did you want to uh, put a bow on that? Yeah, just so much as for, the, for those who are listening to this podcast who are in our own diocese. Um, we're launching... Uh, the basics of this institute. That is the goal. We, we're going to try to enculturate this institute in our diocese from the get-go. There's going to be a catechetical summit at the end of August where all the directors of faith formation and pastors will be coming to meet with me for four hours to plot out 
this path of renewal. And then in the fall, I will be having a series of meetings with all the catechists of all the parishes to give them an appraisal. Because in my mind, this is a fundamental, absolutely essential initiative for the long-term spiritual renewal of the diocese. Yes. Who do you say that I am? The question, the pivotal question in the gospel that then turned to Jesus to Jerusalem, right? Who do you say that I am? Every believer has to answer that question in mind, in heart, and in will. Truth, beauty, and goodness. So that renewal is starting in this diocese and I will do whatever I am humanly possible to make sure that we do not lose this opportunity. It will make a lot of people unhappy. So be it. So be it. Because the faith, the gift, the treasure of our faith should no longer be presented and witnessed in a way that causes people to doubt or to question or to disbelieve. No more, no more. We have not come this far to drop our gauntlet. Now we will not do it, right? And they will, be, they will not be happy, not actually because of the content of the faith, but they won't be happy because we'll have to change what we do and how we do it. But so be it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thank you for doing that, Excellency. It's so important. So needed. I just took out life insurance anyway, so we're fine. <laughs> we're, we're fine. We're okay. <laughs> if, if the world hates you, it hated him first. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. <laughs> okay, so now what do you want right, to talk so, about, my friend? You know, I just want your mind. Well, I thought we would shift gears because um, I wanted to wish you a, a happy belated Father's Day. Oh, same to you, my friend. And we, we, um, we give mothers a lot of uh, attention, rightly mm-hmm. so, on this show. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, just, um, I just didn't want uh, June to swing by without saying Happy Father's Day to the fathers. And we could talk about fatherhood a little bit because yeah, it's so absolutely. important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, Happy Father's Day to you, to all those on our podcast uh, fathers, grandfathers, godfathers, foster fathers, the whole nine yards, right? Um, you know, it's interesting. There's one statistic we've spoken about that I've often thought about. Um, for whatever reason, we have maybe unconsciously de-emphasized the role that fathers have in the religious formation of their children. But in fact, the evidence is clear. When fathers are observant and live their faith, their children are four times more likely to be observant themselves. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing. One could say, why is that the case? And I'm not exactly sure why that is the case, but it is the case. Yeah. So the takeaway is fathers have an enormous role to play in the physical and spiritual care of their spouses, their wives, and their children. Yeah. Right? Okay, so, so Steve, I'm going to put you on the spot. Never heard the word in my life. Never heard the word father. 
and I say to you, Mr. Lee, what, what is a father? What would you say? I would say um, uh, it is a man mm-hmm. who um, has uh, responsibility for and takes responsibility for the care and well-being and education and growth of other people. So it can be, you can be a biological father, you can be a mm-hmm. spiritual father, mm-hmm. um, uh, you can be a father figure. Okay, so, that, so, so uh, if I could edit what you said, yes. and just simply say, instead of saying group of people, it's a family. He cares, nurtures, protects, defends, right, gives life to a, his family because a, a, um, a natural father does it to the natural family God has given him. A spiritual father does it to the spiritual family God has given him, right? Whatever that may happen yes. to be. Yep. Right? So it's family. It's intrinsically part of family, right? All of those verbs mean something in fatherhood, right? So first and foremost, you are a father more than a husband when children are given as a gift, right? Because you could be a husband and wife and not have children. Yes. Your spouses, you love each other deeply, but the term father is not used until there are children involved. Yes, right. So there's a life-giving function to father, right? In the ancient world, we've talked about this, fathers were conceived as the ones who carried literally the entire essence of, of the human being that would become his or her son, or daughter, and the mother was the place where that grew. Hmm. Right? Now, of course, that's not the case biologically. We understand that differently. But so that's one. And then once life is born into the world, along with his wife, a father defends, protects, and nurtures the lives entrusted to his care. So a spiritual father does the same thing. The unitive relationship is with the, the community. It's with the church. Right? It's with his people. The procreative piece, the giving of life, is a spiritual reality. And for those who, you know, kind of would struggle and say, well, how does that happen? And it's very hard for me to describe. But you know when you give life. Sometimes you see it immediately. Sometimes you discover it years later when you meet people and they say things to you and how you change their life. And you're saying, you know, I'm not even sure I remember who you are. Right? But that's grace at work. Or, you know, I, I, I remember some of those powerful moments of my entire life, my entire life, were in confessionals. When you literally, I, I literally saw the dead come back to life. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it beyond that. And I'm not poetic by nature. I literally, you could see, even physically, how people changed right before your eyes. Yeah. It's as if the, the, a burden was just dissolved. You know, their faces were no longer, they walk in, their faces are so twisted because they are themselves spiritually so twisted, and by the grace of God, of which the priest is just a conduit, he's the channel of it, it's like, 
you talk about life giving, it's my goodness. I mean, it's just, it, it takes your breath away. Right? And then, protecting, defending, and nurturing is what a priest really does by teaching, right? By sanctifying, by governing. That's how he does. It's, it's, it's the people. And we live in a world where father and child, child seems almost pejorative, right? So, when you speak of a spiritual family. But in fact, spiritual fatherhood and natural fatherhood have a root in where? One father of us all. Yes. Okay, which is the mystery of the fatherhood that exists in the Trinity. God the Father, one of the three divine persons in the Blessed Trinity. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to explore that, we're going to go into deep waters. You know, I, I wanted to... Um, the thing that you said, um, and I just want to make sure listeners caught that, that when fathers are involved spiritually that their kids are four times as likely to take the faith seriously. That is mm -hmm. huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, it is certainly huge. And it could be either a natural phenomenon or it could be a reaction to the culture in which we live. Because women tend to be in numerical values more observant than men in many ways. You could see it in our parishes. Yeah. And so when a child sees his father observant, it's not the mold that even subconsciously is being conveyed in our society, which is a terrible indictment of men, right? Sometimes, and how, how seriously or not they take the faith. And that's personal, because you can't, I mean, it, to speak of a group is almost kind of meaningless, right? If you speak of individuals. But nonetheless, I'm not exactly sure what the root of that is. I would love to, to, to hear more about the why behind that. Because yeah. I think it's extraordinarily significant. But I think it also is an intuition of the relationship that God the Father has within the Trinity itself and God the Father's relationship with all of us who are his children. Yeah. Fatherhood has an intuition that comes from the self-revelation of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And so that's a, that's a model of the family right there, is it not, Excellency? Absolutely, absolutely, in, in totally spiritual terms, right? Mm -hmm. And remember, God has no gender, because male and female are made in his image and likeness. So when people understand God the Father, they understand that as male, which is not the case. Right? The term is more a relationship than a state of life. You are a father or a mother because of the relationship you have with someone else. If there was not someone else, you wouldn't be mother or father. That was my mm -hmm. point before. Mm -hmm. So it's all about relationship. Yeah. So if we want to intuit, and of course for God, even the catechism speaks of God as father, and one can speak of God as mother, too, right? Because of the characteristics that mothers bring into the relationship with their children. So, but what's particular about the fatherhood of God is that when God revealed himself as a trinity through the incarnation, because prior to the coming of Christ, of the Son of God into creation, 
There was no knowledge of a trinity, none. Israel had no sense of that. And we would never have had it unless the incarnation occurred. Right? The church needed to struggle and say, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, who claims to be God, he is the son of the father, he's calling the father, Abba, father, then therefore, what does that mean about God? Yeah. And that's how we intuited through great struggle because we're limited in our ability to understand so profound a mystery to say that God is a trinity, a, a community of divine persons who is love, is love, and therefore father intuits a relationship with the son, a total self-gift, total, complete, absolute self-gift to the son, who in turn gives himself totally to the Father. So the reciprocal relationship between the Father and the Son is the intuition we need to reflect on when we speak of natural or spiritual fatherhood. How much are you giving of yourself? To what extent are you giving yourself authentically? Can you dare to love to the end? in a world that wants us to create limits, both the natural fathers and spiritual fathers, okay? Reduce natural fatherhood to just something to do rather than someone to be. And spiritual fatherhood to a profession or a ministry hmm. that we run into trouble. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think in the end, um, for myself personally, what I have found in my ministry is that the vocation of natural fatherhood, natural motherhood, spiritual fatherhood, and spiritual motherhood are absolutely foundational for the formation of children at any age, no matter how old they grow, is foundational in the natural and supernatural order. And therefore, a fundamental challenge in our age is to help natural fathers and mothers to be what God has called them to be. And spiritual fathers and mothers to be what God has called you to be. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. Yep. Right. And there's a lot of misunderstanding and confusion there about that. Because my experience has been people are wounded most, most grievously by wounds inflicted by fathers and mothers, spiritual fathers, and spiritual mothers. They are the deepest wounds. Yeah. They are the hardest to heal they cause the greatest damage. Because, go back to the Trinity, the absolute relationship between Father and Son, the absolute self-giving, which is perfect in God. When that breaks down in human relationships, it's like you're short-circuiting the whole reality. Yep, yeah. And it's loving to teach people what you're saying about mothers and fathers and families. Right. 
And when you look at like, uh, you know, on cable, TLC, that cable station, and all the shows that they run, I mean, with all due respect to whoever may watch them, but that is all, though they highlight people who are struggling with deep problems. And I wondered to myself, where did those problems originate? And my guess is a good number of them began in those wounds that mm-hmm. are created in the families, whether it's the natural family or the spiritual family. That's why the abuse crisis was such a heinous crime because it inflicted such deep wounds where there should have been spiritual fatherhood. Total self-gift, it was total manipulation. It was total self-gratification. It was just the opposite. But when you look at natural families and the great struggles that they're facing, it's short-circuiting many places too, right? Yep, yeah. So one of the fundamental questions about fathers Right, if we're speaking just solely about fathers, is how do we help fathers to be the best fathers they can be? <laughs> Any ideas? <laughs> I mean, the, the catechesis will help. But, um, you know, for example, at, in Ridgefield, St. Mary's Church has this really strong, active uh, men's ministry group. They get together mm-hmm. every Saturday morning and... You know, the men there find um, uh, brotherhood and support and they can bounce ideas and things off each other, you know, all from a, a Catholic, you know, they know mm-hmm. that they're, they're sharing this with uh, other men they can trust who share the faith, mm-hmm. come mm-hmm. from the same perspective. So things mm-hmm. like that, I think, are very helpful. I absolutely agree. I think they're absolutely essential. And I would also think that in prior generations, okay, um, when, com- when neighborhoods were more cohesive, that mentoring that you, ex- it, that you just described happened, happened almost instinctively. But to your point, now we have to be intentional yeah. to create those opportunities for mentorship in fatherhood. One cannot presume that whether it is a natural father or a spiritual father, that you are ready right, to be what God has called you to be, right? Like, is there a school on how to, to learn how to be a father? Is there a school to learn how to be a mother, right? You're kind of like, you're put into this situation and, and, and then, you, you know, people go online, they go to these self-help, these philosophies of life and all the rest, yeah, it's fine. But the truth of the matter is, it, it, you learn sometimes the hard way. Yeah, yeah. Right? For sure. And, you know, I have a small group of other dads that I have, um, you know, we've bounced things off each other for years and years. Books that we've read, articles, or I'm struggling with this. Well, I had the same thing and I tried this, you know. And, and of course, you can't discount the model of your own father and um, mm-hmm. what he has done for you. I think back all the time, oh, what did my dad do? How did my dad approach this? How did my dad survive, me and my brother <laughs> growing up? Right, right. Well, you know what? To that point, allow me to, again, raise just a sensitive observation. Not everyone has had a stellar experience with their fathers, okay? Particularly in the immigrant world. Yeah. 
where they grew up. In a, even my father, for example. My father was a good man. I loved my father. My father loved me. But my father, you know, my confirmation talks, I said he was a tough man because my father grew up in a time when love was principally, love was principally demonstrated by providing for your family, defending your family, and making sure they had all they needed. But it wasn't necessarily an affectionate experience. Because as we said last year when we talked about my dad, my dad was much more interested in being respected than being loved in the typical understanding of what you mean by being loved. Yeah. So there was a factor growing up, a fear that came from respect um, that he had and his father had and his father had for generations in a small village right in the south of Italy. So in, in, in many ways, when we now image fatherhood in this very different world, uh, my father would be at a loss, completely at a loss, right, as to how to do it. So the interesting thing is even in my life, as I look back on my dad, um, there were times when my father, you know, disciplined my sister and I, and I said to myself, this guy is cracked in the head, right? For, for doing, asking us to do the things we did because it seemed so disproportionate to what the, the, the crime was, what, what the offense was. But now I look back and I say to myself, well, you know what? I mean, objectively, it may have been severe, but my father was doing, I had no doubt in my, my mind, my father was doing what he believed was best so that we would not fall into the wrong way of life. Mm. Right? So he was loving us in a context that made sense to him that we growing up in the United States were in a different context. And my father did not have the, the educational background to make that cultural shift. Right? But... I just watched a documentary on, uh, I, I believe the, the, the serial killer's name, his last name was Ramirez, in the late 80s in Southern California. He was called the Night Stalker. Hmm. And he killed, he, he murdered 13 individuals, attacked 35 others, and a true sociopath. And while the, the, the series did not ascribe the cause to his sociopathology, in fact, the wounds he received, the emotional and physical and psychological wounds he received as a little boy within his home family were a major contributing factor to the death and destruction inflicted on so many people afterwards. Wow. He was literally dead while still alive. Wow. So, so the great vocation of being a parent, particularly in this case, we're talking about fathers, is such an awesome responsibility that um, we have to pray for all of our parents, spiritual and natural. Yes. Because when they do it well, my God, you give birth to saints. Can I, can I uh, finish this segment on a positive yes. story then? Just, it, it flows directly from what you're saying, Excellency. 
So there's a story, you probably know this story too, by the way, but there's a story of a nine-year-old boy who um, lost his mother when he was nine, and he then clung to his father, even to the point where they shared the same bedroom. And this boy often woke up very early, like before dawn, and he would look mm -hmm. over and he would see his father kneeling in deep in prayer. And when the boy grew up, he recalled this and he talked about what an uh, indelible impression this made on him and in his life. And that mm -hmm. boy was Carl Wojtyla, grew up to be. See? Yes, so <laughs> exactly what you're All saying, right. Excellency. Case in point, we rest our evidence. <laughs> <laughs> All Excellent. right, so okay. So let's take a break. We'll come back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We will be right back. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody is sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question and answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology, I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, I, um, if it's okay with you, I'm going to set aside the listener email that I got because I have a question. I'm talking to you right now from Bethany Beach, Delaware. Because I'm, really? I'm here on vacation with my family. So, Good for you. Yeah. Um, so I, I just redecorated. I wish I had uh, housekeeping service at home. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But uh, so I just wanted to ask you, it's, you know, we're, the summer's kicked off. Do you have any plans? Mm -hmm. Are you going away anywhere? No, no. This year I'm not going to go anywhere um, like exotic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we still have the, uh, the former residents here in Trumbull. So um, normally I would go to my family in Brooklyn, but this year they're coming out to the country. They call this coming out to the country. You're they're right. coming out to the country, <laughs> the kids. So okay. my great niece, my great nephew, my niece, her husband, my nephew, my sister are all coming up. And we're going to spend eight days oh. up in the country. And they, they have, they bought a bouncy house. They bought a water slide. Pray for me. Okay. I just want That's to picture vacation. you on the bouncy house. Oh, could you imagine? Thank, I told you I have life insurance. We're fine. Don't worry about it. That is fantastic. Well, I hope that's. Uh, I'm sure that's going to be a fantastic visit. So oh, it'll be fun. Oh, absolutely. Good. So, and I promise I'll get to that listener question next week. If you have a question for Bishop Frank, please send it to us. You can post it on social media. You can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook. Instagram, and Twitter, so is Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, thank you so much for today. Would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. As we begin these days of summer, Lord God, may your Holy Spirit accompany us, that it may be a time of refreshment and rest and renewal for us and all those whom we love and serve. And may your blessing come upon us, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Steve, enjoy Amen. your vacation, my friend. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Excellency. 